Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome on this Set Your Clock One Hour Earlier Sunday, launching Daylight Savings Time, or as it's referred to in other church traditions, purgatory. <laughs> it's only one hour. It shouldn't be such a big deal, but it is. I've, I've read that on this day every year, hospital admissions are up, car accidents are up, suicides are up on this day. Welcome to church. <laughs> yeah, and on the positive side, we got to wait one less hour for church today. Isn't that great? Thank you for that underwhelming show of support. Thank you. I want to say hello to all of you in Farmington Hills. I'm the same time zone as Northville, Michigan. And those of you who join us from other time zones, a fair number of you joining us today as well. Welcome. Uh, before coming to be the pastor here at Ward Church 14 years ago, I served a church in central Michigan in the town of Mount Pleasant. Uh, Mount Pleasant, Michigan is a wonderful and fascinating town for lots of reasons. The number one employer in the town of Mount Pleasant is the university, Central Michigan University, 20,000 students, and there are professors and faculty and administrators, the number one employer in the town. The second uh, largest employer in the town is Soaring Eagle Casino. Just makes for an interesting mix of people. And the university and the casino compete, compete for number one and number two position. They jockey back and forth over the years. And then Mount Pleasant is surrounded by small farms. Uh, the cultural tension in that college town, in many college towns, the, uh, the tension, the rift is what they often refer to as town and gown. Have you ever heard that phrase, town and gown? Gown refers to the academics, the PhDs who have relocated there from somewhere else in the world. And then there's the townies, the locals. In this case, and in many college towns, uh, blue-collar or agricultural. And we work really hard in our church to mend the rift, to bridge the divide between town and gown. In the book of Acts, the cultural divide is between Jews and non-Jews, but in a college town, it's often the rift between town and gown. And we had great people in our church. We had Ken, the mathematics professor, who had just crazy Albert Einstein hair. I've told you about Ken before, that he dressed crummy on Sunday mornings. He dressed crummy all the time, but he dressed especially crummy on Sunday mornings, so much so that I thought it must be intentional. And I told you it turns out that it was intentional. He didn't want anyone to show up at church. He didn't want a visitor to come and feel they were underdressed. He didn't want anyone to feel awkward when they walked in and didn't know how to dress for church. So he made it his personal aim to be the worst dressed person in the church. That was his goal, a goal which he handily achieved week after week. He was also brilliant, and he became one of our elders and one of our teachers, and he taught me personally a lot about what it means to love God with my mind. Just brilliant. Then we had uh, Margie, who was part of our church, and she came on to our office staff later. And every morning before she came into the office, she milked cows on her farm. At that point, I was only vaguely aware that milk came from cows. Uh, I thought milk came from Kroger, and I just never traced it back any further in my mind, that chain. And uh, her husband was a farmer, and due to complications from diabetes, her husband lost his legs and eventually lost his life. And Margie became a young widow. She later went on to launch our grief 
programs at our church, and her quiet disposition has helped hundreds of people find peace in the midst of grief. Sam was a security guard at the casino, and Sam was ripped. He had pecs and abs and lats and struts and things popping out of his body everywhere, and Sam became a neighbor. He moved into my neighborhood right across the street, and he set up a home gym in his garage and asked me to train with him. Uh, He became my personal trainer. I know he did not do a good job. And Sam and I were volunteering one night at our church for a women's event in which the men of the church served as waiters and a and, uh, really fun uh, event that way. And a woman in our church, Michelle, called me over and she said, Pastor, I don't want to be forward, but could you introduce me to him? And I said, you mean my personal trainer, that guy? And I know he didn't do a good job. And Sam was over there holding up a tray, boom, you know, his uh, coffee ladies and... Uh, And I did introduce uh, them, and I officiated at their wedding one year later, and they became key leaders in our kids' ministry. I always marvel at the kinds of people that God works in and through. God uses their unique personalities and experiences and even their pain points to help a lot of people and to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and to build the church of Jesus. And you see this all throughout the book of Acts that we've been studying together. And I want to call it out especially in the chapter that's been assigned for today, Acts chapter 18. We're going to work our way through this chapter and I'll point out interesting things along the way. But I especially want you to notice the names of the people listed in this one chapter of the book of Acts. And we're going to frame it that way. We'll talk about each people. First person we're going to look at is the Apostle Paul, We know already a great deal about him, the apostle, the church planter, the evangelist, the missionary. And then we're going to look at a couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila is a man's name. This is a married couple, uh, not professional clergy. They are volunteers uh, who become leaders in the church. And lastly, we'll look at a guy named Apollos, brilliant scholar who had an incomplete picture of Jesus and how God used each of these people in really incredible ways. So we'll start with the Apostle Paul. As you know, Paul traveled all around the known world, and Luke, the historian and physician, records everything that's happening in a journal, and that journal becomes what we now know as the book of Acts. And at this point in the book of Acts, Paul is moving so much and so rapidly, Luke has to kind of summarize. And let's look at a map. You probably have a map like this one in the back of your Bible. When we talk about the book of Acts and Paul's journeys, they're sometimes referred to as Paul's first missionary journey, and then his second missionary journey, and his third missionary journey, and depending on how you count, there's even a fourth missionary journey, kind of loops At this point in the book of Acts, we're halfway through Paul's second missionary journey. Last week, we were in Athens. I don't know if you can see this from where you sit, but remember last week, we were in Athens, and Paul stood on Mars Hill, and he talked about the statue uh, dedicated to the unknown God. Then he travels to Corinth, a city in Greece, and he spends a year and a half there, and there's where he meets the married couple Priscilla and Aquila and actually joins them in a business venture. Then Paul travels across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, and Priscilla and Aquila come with him. And then for reasons that aren't spelled out specifically, Paul does not stay in Ephesus long. 
He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and he hightails it back to Jerusalem through Caesarea, spends time in Jerusalem and Antioch, and then he starts the whole route over again. So just in the few paragraphs that were read today, Paul travels a distance of 1,500 miles. That's a lot of miles, no matter what the culture and time, but especially in a time before the invention of the automobile and comfortable walking shoes. Paul is on the move. He is driven. He is on the go. And uh, he's an activist. You remember Paul's story? Paul was an activist even before he came to Jesus. He's driven. He's a zealot persecuting the church. And when he comes to Jesus, his heart is changed. His life is changed. But his core personality is not changed. He's still zealous. He's still driven. He's still fast. But now he's running with Jesus instead of against him. He was driving hard in one direction. He comes to Jesus, and now he drives hard in the opposite direction. And some of you are like Paul. You are activistic. You are driven. You, and, and we need you in the church. You, you make things happen. You get things done. You add energy. Sometimes you're frustrated by slower-moving people. Sometimes you run over slower-moving people. And the Apostle Paul did that too. Paul, as you know, traveled with other people, people like Barnabas and Timothy and Silas and John Mark and even Priscilla and Aquila. But he would often leave a colleague in a town, and then he would go on to the next town. And the assumption is that Paul is saying, look, I'm a starter, not a maintainer. So you stay here in this town and maintain what we started, and I'm going to go on and start something in the new place. And that probably explains a lot of Paul's movement. But I wonder if sometimes the colleagues didn't stay behind just to catch their breath. Like when you're running with someone who's a better runner than you, and you're like, tell you what, I'm going to stay here, and you go on uh, to the next place without me. And I will, I will catch up with you later because no one can keep up with you, Paul. Paul was always on the go. He was hard to keep up with. And he, he, he ran hard and fast. And some of you are like the Apostle Paul and the church needs you. Some of you may have been running hard and fast against God and now you run for God. And those kind of people make the best apostles. So Luke is trying to record this very busy season of Paul, and Luke jots down a few lines in this chapter uh, that aren't really explained. I just want to call out some of them. This line was read, you heard, uh, that Luke records, before Paul sailed, he had his hair cut off because of a vow that he had taken. He had his hair cut off because of a vow he had taken. What kind of a vow is that? And why did he have his hair cut off? It never really says... Now, a lot of people think it must have been some kind of Nazaritic vow because Nazaritic vows often involve the cutting or, of hair or shaving of one's head. Maybe Paul was giving thanks for the way that God had provided and protected him in the whole journey. And now he, he symbolically declares that through the cutting of his hair. This may explain why Paul hightails it back to Jerusalem because technically a vow would be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And if it was a Nazaritic vow, uh, Paul would have brought his hair to the temple at Jerusalem and offered it as a burnt offering. Because who doesn't love the smell of burnt hair? 
There's something going on culturally here that we don't quite understand, but I want you to notice that when Paul became a Christian, he did not cease entirely to be a Jew. He voluntarily participates in and submits himself to various Jewish rites and customs, not under the law anymore, but under grace. This speaker that we're going to have on Palm Sunday, you've heard about, he's going to speak in the morning from Jews for Jesus, and he's going to lead us in a Seder meal. Our speaker doesn't ordinarily describe himself as a Christian. He says, I am a Jew. I am ethnically and culturally a Jew, and I believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Jewish expectation. Maybe you've heard people like that describe themselves as a Messianic Jew. I'm a Jew who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Or a fulfilled Jew. I'm a Jew who believes that those old prophecies have been now fulfilled in Jesus. This is the Apostle Paul. He was a Jew. He remained a Jew culturally. Notice also that uh, Paul, in his journeys, he keeps coming back to Jerusalem to check in at headquarters. Paul does not go rogue. He's not out on his own. He's not starting his own thing. He sees himself as part of and submitted to the one church that at this time in history is headquartered in Jerusalem and Antioch. Uh, So now he travels to Jerusalem to check in and to possibly fulfill a vow that was symbolized by the shaving of his head. Now, tangentially, let me say it's possible that Paul didn't have a lot of hair to begin with. We do not know what the Apostle Paul looked like. The only physical description we have goes back to the second century, and we're not sure if this is accurate or not, but it's all we have to go on. And this is what that second century source says about Paul's description. Paul, let's read this aloud together, shall we? (laughs) Paul was small in stature and bald-headed. I'm not making this up. Again, we do not know if this is accurate. This is the second century. This is 100 years after Paul. So we, we don't know for sure, but, all, but we know from one second century source that Paul was described as a very handsome man. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem to fulfill his vow and to check in at headquarters. And then the story goes on this way. After spending some time in Antioch, we don't know how long, Paul sets sail from there. He's on the move, and he travels from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, uh, strengthening all the disciples. Paul goes back through the places he'd already been, this time not for new converts, not to start new churches, not that we know, but to strengthen the disciples, to go to people who came to faith in Jesus, to teach them and encourage them and build them. This is Paul, not just the evangelist, this is Paul the pastor here because disciples need to be strengthened. And that's why we're such fans of small groups and Bible studies and support groups because our mission as a church is to lead generations to live and love like Jesus. To live and love like Jesus. And most of us do not live and love like Jesus naturally automatically. And we certainly don't do it in isolation. We need to be strengthened, encouraged, coached, trained, taught, built up. Angie and I are part of a uh, small group that meets every other week. 
And uh, in that group, we open our Bibles together, and we share our successes and our failures, and we encourage each other to live and love like Jesus in our places of work, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. And I need that. And you need that too. We have hundreds of groups to which you can belong and be strengthened. We also need to be strengthened by the Scriptures. And a lot of you have done as I have done, and you've downloaded the Bible to your phone. Uh, uh, the version I use is the U version, Y-O-U version. You might have something else. And that's great because the Bible then is always with you, and it's always at your fingertips. Um, but I still like paper. Anybody remember paper? Wasn't paper great? If you would like a paper Bible, uh, you can take the one that's in the pew rack in front of you. And we do not consider that stealing. We have extra Bibles expressly for this purpose. And if you would like a Bible, just take one home with you today. In Farmington Hills, you do not have pews, but you do have Bibles. They're in the back of the room, and they are there for the taking. Nothing will strengthen you like the Bible like the scriptures. So we have the Apostle Paul, activistic, driven, on the move. Some of you are wired like that. And then we're introduced in this chapter to Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple. We'll back up a little uh, in chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens, where we were last week, and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Priscilla and Aquila really are refugees fleeing religious persecution. And the fact that Priscilla's name is almost always mentioned first suggests in that time and place that she was somehow deemed more prominent or more important. Uh, some think she might have been from a higher-standing family, or maybe she was the Roman citizen and not her husband. Or maybe she had a more prominent role in the church. But we know that together this husband-wife team had a business. They had a company that made tents and did leather working. Priscilla and Aquila are not seminary-trained pastors. They are business people and craftspeople. And yet in Romans 16.3, Paul calls them co-laborers in Christ. Paul saw them as equal co-laborers in Christ. Priscilla and Aquila, like Paul, had a heart for the gospel and wanted to see the gospel taken to one of the most prominent cities in the Roman Empire. Let's go back to that map. They really want to take the gospel to Ephesus, a prominent port city on the western coast of Asia Minor. There were a lot of Jews living here. And here there was a temple, a very famous temple to the Greek god Artemis, and this temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a strategic place for ministry and a great place for Paul and Priscilla and Aquila to set up shop. And as I told you, for reasons that aren't quite explained, Paul doesn't stay, but he heads back to Jerusalem, leaving Priscilla and Aquila to build a house church. They were the pastors, the leaders, the Bible study leaders of this house church, and they built their business. Now, Paul said when he left Ephesus, I hope to come back here if it is God's will. And apparently it was God's will because in the very next chapter, Paul's back at Ephesus, and this time he's going to stay for three years. Priscilla and Aquila, non-seminary trained people who become Bible leaders and leaders of a house church. 
Uh, our last person we'll talk about today is named Apollos. Apollos. This is not the guy from the Rocky movies. This is a different guy. And here's what we read about Apollos from uh, chapter 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had, been in, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. This guy shows up in Ephesus, and he preaches up a storm. And he is from Alexandria, the capital city of Egypt. Uh, Alexandria had a large and influential Jewish community, which produced works like the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible done in Alexandria. At that time, the largest library in the world was in Alexandria, 700,000 scrolls. This is a very important city in Paul's day. And Luke tells us in verse 24 that Apollos was a learned man. A learned man. In the, um, uh, in the Living Translation, it says he was a smart dude. No, it doesn't say that. But he was a smart dude who, who knew the way of the Lord. And it's unclear whether he like, was a smart dude who knew of the way of the Lord or whether he was a smart dude who walked in the way of the Lord. Because he had a kind of incomplete understanding. He had the baptism of John only. And Priscilla and Aquila invited him into his home to instruct him more fully, more adequately about the way of the Lord. There's some question, uh, some debate, if Apollos is even a real Christian at all in this part of the story. He seems more like an Old Testament scholar who has a vague kind of awareness about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Uh, pastor and scholar uh, Ray Stedman says this about Apollos. Apollos was a halfway Christian. He was a halfway Christian. He knew nothing of the cross, the resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. His message was basically incomplete. He announced the word about Jesus, but said nothing about those three essentials that make it possible for the word of Jesus to be experienced in our own life. His death, his resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Apollos was a halfway Christian. And maybe some of you can relate. You come to church, you read your Bible, but you feel incomplete. You feel uncertain. You feel uh, maybe a little lost. You feel half. And so it leads to you being half-hearted and half-committed. And the good news is that God can use you too. God started to use Apollos before Apollos had a full understanding. God used those scholastic gifts of Apollos while Apollos was still working it all out. God can use you before you have fully arrived. Now, of course, God doesn't want people to stay half-hearted and half-committed. It's possible to stay on some kind of fence too long. Apollos didn't stay half-hearted. He was eager to learn, and Apollos, the scholar, submitted himself to the teaching of the very ordinary Priscilla and Aquila, and he went from half-hearted to wholehearted. He went from half-committed to wholly committed. And if you've been riding a fence of some kind, maybe, maybe now's the time to hop off that fence 
Maybe now's the time to make a commitment to say, God, I don't want to be a half Christian anymore. I want to be wholly committed to you. God, receive my whole life and all of my gifts. I am in, I am all in. When Apollos went all in and he was trained and taught, he was sent out as an ambassador for Jesus. And this is the last we hear about Apollos in this chapter. We'll hear more from him later. When Apollos arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. What kind of people does God use? A driven zealot who ran hard and fast against God and then ran hard and fast for God. What kind of people does God use? Two ordinary business people, non-seminary trained, who became Bible teachers and church leaders. What kind of people does God use? A brilliant scholar and speaker and debater who had only an incomplete understanding of Jesus and became one of the greatest representatives of him. Who are the people that God uses? A casino security guard, a farmer's widow, an eccentric professor. Different kinds of people, all needed for God's work. How will God use you? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us. You have received us into your family and placed your Holy Spirit in us. Now animate us by your Spirit that we may walk in new life and in new confidence as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. We pray for a gospel movement like the one we read about in the book of Acts. Use us, we pray, through Christ our Lord and everybody said, Amen. Amen.